Well, if you turn in your Bibles now, we will be continuing our study in the book of John. In the book of John, chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11, will be our scripture reading this morning. John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus has concluded his discourse at the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the major feasts. It is likened to perhaps a a long, week-long, seven or eight days of thanksgiving to the Lord, in which they have been celebrating and commemorating God's provision for Israel as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. God's provision of food and water, protection of the nation of Israel during that time. And here we look at this case where the Pharisees and the scribes bring an adulterous woman before Jesus. And it begins here in chapter 7, verse 53. Everyone went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, your precious word. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We pray, Father, that it might be divided rightly, that, Father, you would be honored. Grant to us insight, illumine our minds, and may your Spirit help us, Father, to be gracious, to be merciful, that we might see, O Father, the truth of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1990s, the American Heart Association Atlanta, there was their annual meeting and thousands, 
thousands of doctors and nurses and researchers came together to discuss, among other things, the importance of diet in keeping a healthy heart. The importance of diet in keeping a healthy heart. What was ironic, though, was that during the meal times, their meals consisted of fast foods such as bacon, cheeseburgers, and fries, about the same rate as people in other conferences. And when one cardiologist was asked whether or not partaking of such high-fat meals set a bad example, his reply was, not me. I took my name tag off. <laughs> Often that's how we function, isn't it? Whether you're a parent or whether you're a friend or whoever it may be, when we see something wrong, it's easy to speak up about it. But my problem? What problem? We see ourselves perhaps more mature and more strong than we ought. We see the faults of others as magnified and our own faults minimized. We see ourselves as perhaps pictures of some maturity, some strength, especially when we see the faults of others. You know, in a forest, there are a lot of trees, huge trees, some of them. And some trees are particularly large. They tower above all of the other trees, the picture of strength and maturity. But oftentimes loggers, when they go into a forest like that, will leave those trees behind. They'll leave those trees behind and one might wonder, why didn't they cut down that huge tree? Probably has two or three times as much lumber as the other ones and it would clear the way because you know what? Then the younger trees can grow up. Well, the reason is simple, because many times those large, huge trees are rotten on the inside. They're the types of trees that you see in children's books where the raccoons live in them, or they're the types of trees that will blow over in a strong windstorm, because even though on the outside they appear as large and strong, their hollowness makes them weak. Maybe they're diseased. We have a tree similar to that right out here that we've told the city about and they're going to sometime cut it down. It's one of the largest trees here, but it is not nearly as strong as a number of the others. But that is the essence, really. That is the essence of hypocrisy, appearing to be strong on the outside, but on the inside, the hollow core is rotten. The appearance of being strong, of having that facade when inside it's empty. The picture of hypocrisy. Those that appear perhaps even to be righteous but are disingenuous on the inside. Active hypocrites are those who often see, as I mentioned, the faults of others. So hard to see the magnitude of one's own sin. And in today's text, that's what we see today. In today's text, we see the scribes and the Pharisees as they're exposed by Jesus, they intended to trap him, but their own insincerity is uncovered. So as we look at this particular text, it's a challenging text. Because it's important to notice in verse 53 all the way to 811 in your Bibles, it is bracketed. There are brackets on both sides of that passage. Many of you in your Bibles, I'm sure you have a little footnote. It says something like later manuscripts or later MSS, meaning manuscripts, add this story. 
Or perhaps it may say something like earlier manuscripts do not contain these verses. Something to that effect. There is one other long passage that is similar to this that's kind of bracketed out in your Bibles, and that is Mark 16, 9 to 20. So the question is, how do you look at a passage such as that? How do you look at a passage that is bracketed in your Bible when you come to a marginal note? And these are far and few between. But it requires that you look at two aspects, two aspects of the text. One is called the internal evidence. Meaning, you look and examine what the text actually says, and then you look at the external evidence. You look at manuscript evidence, early versions, you look at the early church fathers, what those who were nearest to the time of Christ, what they said about the passage, and many times you'll find these in commentaries and resource materials. This section dealing with the woman who was caught in adultery we find that there is external as well as internal evidence that shows some of the things that make you think about this particular passage, such as the fact that the earliest and the best manuscripts exclude it. Many manuscripts, as you know, copies of the New Testament mark the passage to indicate some sort of doubt as to its inclusion or it's been incorporated into different texts of the New Testament in different places, such as after verse 36 or 44 or 52, or after chapter 21, verse 25, or Luke 21, 38, beginning there. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says the diversity of placement confirms the inauthenticity of the verses, these particular verses that are found here. Sometimes it is interrupting. Some may see the flow of the text and the internal evidence. For me, Jesus has just talked about the fact that He will give them and make them into rivers of living water as He gives the Holy Spirit. And then He begins to talk about the light of the world. And somehow this particular story just doesn't seem to fit or the vocabulary and the style seem to be different than the rest of the Gospel. But many people believe that it is very consistent with the rest of the Scriptures. That it presents Christ, presents the religious leaders in the same manner as the other Gospels do. And that it is likely a, an actual historical event. And so there is some conjecture that it was part of the oral tradition that this really did happen and it was actually true and the truthful account of what had happened. And so you take these two things into consideration, some of the evidences that show that it, perhaps it wasn't a part of the original text, and yet it's consistent with the rest of the Gospels and its nature and the things that it taught and the characters that it portrayed. The evidence against its inclusion is not enough to overwhelm the conclusive evidence that it should be excluded. In other words, this particular passage likely happened but may not have been a part of the original manuscripts. Some may say, well, how, how, does, that, how does that square with this, the doctrine of inerrancy? Well, the doctrine of inerrancy, it doesn't dissuade at all because the doctrine of inerrancy pertains to the veracity of the original manuscripts of which we do not have the copies now. 
The truthfulness of the original manuscripts is preserved. But this particular section of text we find in a number of manuscripts, even though it may not be in the earliest and the best manuscripts, and it provides for us an insight, provides for us an insight into who Jesus was, the balance of justice and mercy, the character of the Pharisees, the compassion of the heart of Christ. And so even though there is some question as to its inclusion in the early times, we still draw from it, we still draw from it the lessons that it teaches. So just to remind you the background in which this particular text comes, as I mentioned earlier, it comes after the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, a week-long feast in which they celebrated and commemorated God's provision for the nation of Israel for 40 years, providing for them food and water in the desert. They would build these booths because the Feast of Tabernacles was sometimes called the Feast of Booths. They would build these booths on rooftops or in the square, and they would live in these little tents. They would live in these little tents just as the Israelites did during their stay in the desert. And then there would be a ceremony. After all of those days, there would be a water ceremony in which people would take palm branches, hold them above the altar. The priest would come in with two pints of water and pour it symbolically. The people would be singing the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. There would be songs and celebrations. All the while, they would be praying for rain. And Jesus would come. And He would say on the backdrop of that, in verse 38, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Referring to the Holy Spirit, these people were praying for rain and Jesus has come to me and I will meet the deepest needs of your heart. The needs for thirst to quench the thirst of your soul. And here comes this account. Of what happens. Everyone went to his own home. This was after the feast. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came into the temple. Verse 53. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach. This was customary for a rabbi. Customary for a rabbi. As you recall in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus went to his own hometown. He read the scriptures. He stood up. People would stand to read the scriptures. And then he would sit down. As most rabbis, all rabbis would do. Why? Because they would never want themselves to be placed or seen as placed above the Word of God. And he would begin to teach. Began to teach. And we see how he is tested. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They set her in the center of the court. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They were saying this to test him. They might have grounds to accuse him. So here come the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes, sometimes you'll see in the Bible, they're also called the lawyers. They were the experts in the law. 
They were those that, just like today, we have lawyers. They know the law very well. They help us to understand what the law says, its implications, its applications, etc. These were the lawyers. And the Pharisees were one of four. The Pharisees were one of four religious sects in Judaism. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Those two groups made up the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. There would be the Essenes, who were those similar to those who were in the Qumran community where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were the Essenes. And then there were the Zealots. Those were the militaristic, the, the people who wanted to overthrow Rome by, by might. Those were the four types or four sects of Judaism, Judaish religious, religious beliefs. The scribes were sometimes Pharisees as well. But the scribes and the Pharisees came. They came and they brought this woman who had been caught in adultery and Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. This is the context. Now bear in mind in verse 6, their motive. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. The word test here is not a test in an innocuous sense. It wasn't a test as if it was, uh, they had a question. It was a test. And the word here implies a wicked, evil motive. They wanted to get him. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to bring, as it says here, grounds for accusing him. So they brought this woman who was caught in the very act and they asked Jesus whether or not they should stone her to death. After all, the law of Moses, Leviticus 20 verse 10, the law of Moses was the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Shall surely be put to death. Adultery is the violation of the seventh commandment. And Jesus himself declared that adultery was also a matter of the heart, not just the act. So what or how were they trying to test or trap Jesus? What was the trap that they had set? What was the logic behind the trap? Because, you see, it was like this. If Jesus said, yes, stone her, he would have been accused perhaps of circumventing Roman law. Because Roman law didn't allow the Jews to execute anyone. You remember when Jesus was brought to trial himself. They brought him before Pontius Pilate because they themselves could not crucify someone on their own. He would have been branded as an insurrectionist, dragged before Rome, accused of not being compassionate even before the people because he was a champion, a defender of the common people. Showing mercy. But if he said, no, don't stone her, he would be accused of violating the Mosaic law. Which would be a violation against God, losing the respect of people by disobeying. So, what did he do? What's interesting, we look at the motives of the scribes and the Pharisees. We know that they brought this woman to test him with evil, wicked motives. And yet, the whole context, when you look at it carefully, was a setup. Obvious in light of the circumstances. 
After all, one could ask, first of all, where was the man? Where was the adulterer? Had they truly been out for justice? Leviticus 20 said that you bring the adulterer and the adulteress. Both the man and the woman were to be brought and stoned. Nowhere was the man to be found. They only brought the woman. And then secondly, why, why in the world did they bring her to Jesus? Had it truly been such that they were out for justice? Jesus was, wasn't a judge. Jesus wasn't one who had an official position to render a verdict on the woman's life in any legal or secular sense. Why bring her to Jesus? And then she was caught in the act. I mean, adultery is a sin that is committed in secret. Adultery is shameful and generally it was hidden. But how was she caught in the act? Granted, there may be some extenuating circumstances such as drunkenness, but the facts were they didn't bring the adulterer here. They brought him to Jesus, the wrong venue or person, and if they had truly been seeking justice and being caught in the act, how did that happen? Telltale signs of some type of setup, and they persisted in asking him, even as he bowed and wrote on the ground, they persisted in asking him, demanding an answer. And Jesus masterfully responds in a way that exposes their own hypocrisy. He responds in a way that silences them. He stoops down on the ground. And here we see in verses 8, 6 through 9, their hypocrisy. He writes on the ground. They persisted in asking him. He stood up and he said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He went down and wrote again. Now, what was Jesus writing? What was Jesus writing? Some think the Lord was writing... Out Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, O Lord, it says, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Some suggest that he was maybe writing down what he would say in verse 7. Some say he was writing down perhaps part of the law, Exodus 23, verse 1, not being a malicious witness. Some, perhaps most popular view, was that he was writing down the sins of the woman's accusers so that they would be able to see their own sin. Whatever we wrote, whatever he wrote, we do not know. And it's not pivotal to the main point of the story. They persisted in asking him, badgering him, what do you say? What do you say? And he replied to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He responded with what the word of God said. For in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, it says, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. In other words, if you were a witness, you would be first to throw the stone. She was caught in sin, you threw the stone first, and then everyone will join in to stone someone to death. His answer did four things. 
It upheld the truthfulness of the Mosaic law. It placed the burden of whether or not to execute upon the scribes and the Pharisees. Avoided undermining Rome. He exposed their own ulterior motives in his answer. And the result was mercy for the adulteress. Scribes and the Pharisees themselves, they weren't innocent and they knew it. When they heard it, verse 9, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court, the indictment, you see, had been turned on themselves because they were the epitome. The Pharisees and the scribes were the epitome of self-righteousness, of how they saw themselves and they looked at others in a very judgmental way. With a judgmental attitude. It was like in the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9 through 16. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the publican, about the Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. It says in Luke 18, verse 9 through 14, as they came into the temple to pray, the Pharisee, it said, stood, was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Pat, pat, pat. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his own breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The epitome of self-righteous, prideful thinking. Thanking God that they're not like someone else. As if it was because of them. And even when we look at other people, it is by the grace of God... That we are who we are, not in of ourselves, nothing that we are deserving of. Matthew chapter 7. It's a very well-known passage. If you turn your Bibles there with me, Matthew chapter 7 speaks of this same idea. Very well-known passage to many. Verses 1 through 5 in Matthew chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching the people and he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged for in the way you judge, you will be judged and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Bible isn't condemning being discerning, being discretionary, being wise, making decisions or forbidding all types of judgments. In fact, each and every one of us makes a judgment call to varying degrees every single day. In our culture, there's a backlash against those who would make biblical judgments against sin. 
But that's not what Jesus is forbidding. He's condemning the self-righteous, critical, judgmental spirit that stems from pride and conceit like the Pharisees. As he had often said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that which was taught by the rabbis, the attitude that is hypocritical, that doesn't look to glorify God and especially does not address the issues of one's own heart first. And pride, that type of heart, looks down on others and say, you know what, they're not as good as I am. I think this and that and look at others' faults, minimizing our own at the same time. person often doesn't extend grace, does not give the benefit of the doubt, does not think the best of others, jumping to conclusions. That is the type of hypocritical, judgmental attitude that is condemned. Romans 14.4 reminds us of the same thing. So who are you, it says, to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Or maybe James. Turn to the book of James. There, closer to the back of your Bible, James chapter 4. Verse 11. James here writes... The diaspora, those who are scattered, gives them practical instruction. And he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Oftentimes, you see, we don't know what others go through. We don't know how others are doing and we level a judgment. We level a criticism against them. It is wrong to speak against one another in a grumbling or critical way. I read about a grocery store cashier who wrote an article to Ann Landers. Ann Landers is a syndicated columnist, and she writes advice columns. That grocery store cashier wrote to complain that she had seen people buy birthday cakes and bags of shrimp at the grocery store with their food stamps. People on welfare who treated themselves to such non-necessities were, quote, lazy and wasteful, the writer said. A few weeks later, Ann Landers' column was devoted entirely to the responses of this letter. One woman wrote in, I didn't buy a cake, but I did buy a big bag of shrimp with food stamps. So what? My husband has been working at a plant for 15 years when it shut down. The shrimp casserole I made was for our wedding anniversary. And lasted three days. Perhaps the grocery clerk who criticized that woman would have a different view of life after walking a mile in my shoes. Unquote. Another woman wrote, I'm the woman who bought the $17 cake and paid for it with food stamps. I thought the checkout woman at the store would burn a hole through me with her eyes. What she didn't know The cake was for my little girl's birthday. It will be her last. She has bone cancer, 
and will probably be gone within six to eight months. Unquote. You never know what people are going through. We level a criticism at them, pass a judgment prematurely. Are we like that? Do we look at others and say, look at what they buy or don't buy, what they spend their money on or where they live, what they wear, what they drive, unfairly judging them how they use their time when in reality, we don't know. We don't know what their life situation is. Rather than being judgmental or critical like these Pharisees and not seeing our own sin, how about replacing it with gratitude? Replacing with thankfulness. Seeing the good. Seeing the strengths. Seeing how people and appreciating them for all whatever their gifts are and how they fit in, whether it's to the body of Christ or what they've done to a neighbor and complimenting them. You won't believe how far a compliment can go. When the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, started back in 1973, they had no money. This is the conservative branch of the Presbyterians. They didn't have a dime, and they were going to start a new denomination. And they were given a gift of $90,000, an incredible amount of money, especially back in the 70s. And they were for world missions. At the time, they had two missionaries. They had a man named Dick Dye and a woman named Ellen Barnett. And they were ministering down in Acapulco. And Dick Dye had been trying for months to start a church. And many times when you try and begin a church, it's discouraging. And so he, he would look. Whenever he got discouraged, he would look up at a nearby mountain because there was a cross there. There was a cross on the mountain, this missionary. That encouraged him and he went on to try again and try and try again. Finally, he decided he wanted to see where that cross was and so he drove up to that mountain. Drove up to that mountain and when he did, he found that that cross was attached to a hotel. And so he asked the secretary, can I speak to the man who who runs the establishment? She said, do you have an appointment? He said, no appointment. I just want to tell him something. She said, what do you want to tell him? He said, I I want to thank him. The secretary got the owner. I said, I'm a missionary from the United States here in Acapulco. I've been discouraged, but I, I see the cross and it encourages me. I want to thank you for putting it up there. The man looked at Dye and he put his head down on his desk and he began to weep, began to cry. He wept and he wept. He finally raised his head and said, The cross has been up there for years and all I've heard is criticism. You're the first man who's ever said thank you. Now who are you and what do you need? He said, I'm just a missionary, Dick said. What, where do you meet? We don't meet anywhere. I don't have any place to meet. The owner said, come with me. And he took Dick to this beautiful chapel. And he said, we have church here at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. From now on, it's yours at 10 a.m. You begin services next week. And that was the beginning of the PCA's missionary plant. And within a few years, it turned into four congregations over the PCA of Mexico that they turned it over to. How did it start? Somebody that just said thank you. To characterize Christians. 
thankfulness, gratitude, appreciation. Showing godliness with contentment is great gain. Jesus, after hearing about another's sin, when these Pharisees and the scribes brought this woman to him, didn't chime in. He didn't condone. He didn't condemn. Rather, he gave grace. He exposed the sin of those who came and turned their attention back to themselves. And it's interesting, verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. Some manuscripts add being convicted in their conscience. Speechless, they trickled away. They trickled away because they knew that they themselves could not cast the first stone. And His mercy is shown. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Verse 10. No one, Lord. Verse 11. No one, Lord. Scribes and the Pharisees left. He addresses this Woman is woman. It's not a rude term in any sense. It's not a condescending term. It was one of respect in the New Testament times. He admonished her, but he didn't condemn her. He acknowledged that it was sin. Romans 2 tells us in verses 1 through 4. Tells us, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But who do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will not escape? That you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is patient with me. God is patient with you. God is patient with us in our sin. Why? Because in kindness and patience and tolerance, God leads us to repentance That's the answer to someone who says, why doesn't God just get rid of all sin? Why does He allow evil to continue? You know, if God judged all sin without mercy immediately, then every single person who is here would no longer be alive. Because no one is innocent. No one is sinless. No one is perfect. But God in His grace and God in His mercy extends that to each of us. And we in turn need to extend that grace and mercy to others. Again, he didn't condone her sin. He said in the end, go therefore and sin no more. He called it what it was, sin. But she needed to stop. The perfect balance between the justice of God and the mercy of God is displayed in Christ. Ronald Rollizer in The Holy Longing says... We want to be a saint. We also feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to be experienced and taste of all of life. We want to serve the poor and have a simple lifestyle. We also want all the comforts of the rich. We want to have the depth afforded by solitude. 
But we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray. We also want to watch television, read, talk to friends and go out. There's a dichotomy. Oftentimes in who we really are and what we really want. And so as we look into our own lives, in an honest sense, before we level a criticism or a judgment, who are we before God? Are we quick to judge? Are we harsh in our criticism? Are we hypocritical in our attitudes and our actions? Do we see our own sins? Do we see our own faults as they truly are? Are we humble enough to change and to be gracious towards others, knowing that it is God who works in and through them, knowing that it is God who has been merciful to us. Why? So that we, through His kindness and tolerance and patience, Romans 2.4, not knowing that the kindness of God, it says, leads us to repentance. May we see ourselves in the light of the grace of God and extend that grace to others just as Jesus does here. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, how this account of the adulterous woman reminds us so much, O God, of the spirit by which we can come towards others. May we not see ourselves as self-righteous, leveling criticism and being quick to judge. But Father, may we extend that grace and mercy, not condoning sin, but Father, knowing that it is because of your patience that we came to know you. And may we extend that grace to others for your glory. In Jesus' name.